0: This is Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. After years of back and forth, the State Assembly has officially approved funding for a new youth prison, a move that would close the aging Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake facilities in Irma. The Associated Press reports that the proposal for a new facility does not yet include a site for the building and that construction cannot begin until the plan is approved by the local government of wherever they decide to build the facility. The bill signed last week would allow the state to borrow $42 million to build the new facility in Milwaukee County. The legislature voted to close both Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake four years ago. Just before 11 a.m. this morning, Madison Police reported a bomb threat for Madison Memorial High School and Jefferson Middle School, The Madison Police Department reports the threat said that a man had, quote, placed multiple bombs near the school, end quote. The threat prompted an evacuation for students of both schools. The evacuation lasted for over two hours before students were given the all clear to return to school after no explosive materials were found, reports the Capital Times. Madison Memorial School District spokesperson Tim Lamons wrote in a statement that the district was, quote, very proud of all our scholars who did an excellent job following safety procedures, end quote. Madison Police will continue to investigate the source of the threat. The Capital Times also reports that UW Health nurses picketed in front of the hospital's emergency room to demand the administration recognize their union on Thursday evening. After the 2014 expiration of the union contract, UW nurses have been seeking a revival of the contract, despite the elimination of collective bargaining rights for most public employees, brought by the passage of Act 10. UW Health CEO Alan Kaplan cites Act 10 as a reason for not taking action, though the act simply eliminates collective bargaining rights and does not prohibit them. Additionally, multiple Ligo memos have stated that Act 10 would not affect the nurses at UW Health. Over half of union eligible nurses are in support of the union. Nurses spoke about how coworkers quitting leads to staffing shortages and impacts exhaustion and mental health issues for current employees. Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozan and State Senator Melissa Agard showed support at Thursday's rally. Agard said to the nurses, quote, it is past time for the hospital's authorizing board to work tirelessly on your behalf, end quote. The Dane County indoor mask mandate is set to end tomorrow and officials say they do not have plans to renew it. This means that people will no longer have to wear a mask inside restaurants and businesses unless the businesses specifically ask for it. Madison buses are still requiring masks on buses and at transport points and in shelters due to a federal mandate that remains in effect for all public transportation. Other businesses and organizations may choose to still require masks. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 340 confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin yesterday as the state's seven-day average case numbers continue to drop the current average is 679 confirmed cases each day over the past week. The weekly average of positive test results also continues to drop, sitting at just 4.6% of tests coming back positive over the last week. There were also no deaths from the virus in Wisconsin yesterday. Here in Dane County, there were only 213 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, and that's more than a 43% decrease in case numbers over the past two weeks. 64 people are still hospitalized from the virus in Dane County. And now, on to today's top stories. A bill pushing through the Wisconsin state legislature would remove qualified immunity for college and university administrators who, quote, violate certain individual expressive rights, unquote a proposal university officials worry could lead to frivolous lawsuits. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
1: Last week, the Wisconsin Assembly passed a bill which would strip university and college administrators of their qualified legal immunity in cases where they, quote, violate certain individual expressive rights, unquote. The legislation is in response to alleged discrimination against conservative students and speakers on college campuses. Representative Clint Moses is a Republican from Menominee and one of the measure's lead sponsors. He argues those spaces should be an open marketplace of ideas.
2: As a legislator with a college campus in my district, as well as two other neighboring UW schools, I have heard all too well from students attending those UW campuses that they are fearful to share their thoughts openly on campus.
1: In written comments, a University of Wisconsin System spokesperson said that while UW officials support free speech, Removing university administrators' immunity could lead to, quote, "...frivolous lawsuits or lawsuits of questionable merit," unquote. They also say, as a public university, providing legal defense in such a case would be at taxpayer expense. The measure is the latest in a long line of Republican-authored bills which have sought to attach penalties to free speech violations on university campuses. In a committee hearing on the bill, Milwaukee Democratic Senator Chris Larson argued it would limit universities' ability to intervene in cases where speakers or students voice beliefs that could spur violence against marginalized communities.
3: How does this bill not end up uh, giving an undeserved platform to white supremacy and neo-Nazis and fascism?
1: The legislation has been passed on to the Senate for further deliberation and consideration. As a partisan bill with exclusively Republican sponsors, it faces a likely veto from Democratic Governor Tony Evers. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
0: It's now 6.13 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After Russia began their invasion of Ukraine last week, global leaders placed heavy sanctions on Russia, crippling their economy and restricting their trade with the rest of the world. To learn more about what these sanctions actually are and why they are significant, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with UW-Madison political science professor Mark Koplovich.
2: I'm on the line with Mark Koplovich, professor of political science and public affairs over at UW Madison and the director of European Studies at the university. Mark, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, just to start things off, so the US announced that they will be placing sanctions on Russia over their invasion of Ukraine. What are these sanctions and why are they significant?
4: So, they're a set of financial actions Uh, And it's not just the U.S. at this point, it's the European Union, it's Japan, it's, you know, all of the major countries in the world economy at this point uh, that are designed to go after the money, basically restrict Russia's ability to uh, participate in global finance and use its financial resources to conduct transactions with the rest of the world. Um, So you know, there's a, there's a whole series of sanctions. Some are targeting the foreign exchange reserves of the Russian government and central bank. Some of them are targeting uh, specific Russian banks and restricting their ability to participate. Um, and so basically, if you think about um, how a country is plugged into the world economy, A lot of it is through money moving through computer systems, basically, at this point, um, flowing across borders um, from bank to bank, from government to government, from government to international institution. And these sanctions are basically ways to close off those different channels. By which a country is plugged into the global financial system,
2: and have these sanctions? Uh, we're recording this just about midday here on Monday. Have these sanctions gone into effect quite yet, or are these something that they are planning on doing? Uh, they haven't.
4: They've they've had an enormous effect. Um, I mean, they have basically, in a matter of days, um, cut off Russia from the global financial system. All right, and so. Uh, Russia has about 630 billion dollars in foreign exchange reserves um, that its central bank has. Um, about 120 billion of that is in gold. Um, about 500 million uh, billion of that is various forms of foreign exchange. Right, so Russia will hold euros or dollars or Swiss franc or Japanese yen, so it can freely buy and sell. Um, basically to defend the value of the ruble right, against those other currencies and to participate in buying things from the rest of the world. Um, and so one set of sanctions is basically freezing those assets. And right? so when a government or a central bank holds foreign exchange reserves, it's basically held as a bank account in the central bank of the counterpart country. Right. So there's actually a lot of Russian foreign exchange reserves which are being held in EU countries or at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, whatnot. And this is restricting Russia's ability to draw on those. Right? Um, it's restricting Russia's ability to sell gold in global markets to turn those into liquid assets. So that's one part of the sanctions that's had a huge immediate effect. And the ruble has dropped in value in currency markets. Last week it was at 75 It's currently down at about 115, right? So you're restricting Russia's ability to um, offset people selling off rubles by using its foreign exchange to exchange those reserves for rubles and prop up the value of the ruble. So that's one set of the sanctions. The other one is Russia's three largest banks have now been cut off from engaging in transactions uh, with the rest of the world, right? So, you know, the, the U.S. and the Europeans are not, invading Ukraine going in militarily, but this is basically financial statecraft or financial warfare to restrict Russia's ability to finance itself. And the ultimate goal is to restrict the ability to sustain the military effort in Ukraine by cutting off the money.
2: And these banking systems, is this SWIFT? Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Because I know there's been a lot of talk about cutting SWIFT off from the Russians. Can you just speak on that a little bit and just sort of why this is a big move?
4: Yeah, so SWIFT is, uh, I'll draw an analogy, a colleague of mine, Dan McDowell at Syracuse University, uh, has been talking about this the last couple of days and it's it's a good analogy. So um, SWIFT is basically, if you think about like a home heating system, right? Um, you've got a thermostat and you've got ducts and then you've got rooms, right? And SWIFT is basically the thermostat system. The air is money flowing through the global financial system and the ducts are basically bank accounts or different banks that are plugged into the heating system right and so what swift is is the ducts are the plumbing right and the thermostat um and it is a system that the world economy basically runs on dollars right or dollars and euros they're the two dominant reserve currencies in the world countries when they hold foreign exchange reserves about 50 to 760% of what they hold as dollars and about 20 to 30% of what they hold as euros and the way that countries and banks talk to each other is through this swift system right so if you cut a country off from swift or you cut a bank off from swift um, they basically can't send money back and forth to other counterparties in the economy right? Banks can't send money to other banks, countries and governments can't send monies to other governments. Um, and so what, what cutting off from Swift is, is basically saying Russia, you can't participate in the payments network and the ducks by which your economy talks to our economy. Um, and so, you know, so again, if you think about the sanctions, some of them are targeted at the Russian central bank and the Russian government, some of them are targeted directly at, uh, banks in Russia. This third thing with SWIFT is basically cutting the country off as a whole from participating in, in the global economy. Um, and so it's really, you know, it's a sort of full multi-pronged effort by the US, the EU, the Japanese, the Canadians, the Swiss, you know, most of the countries that are the major players in the global economy doing this in a coordinated fashion, right, which is really the, the speed of it and the, the coordination of it. Um, Is something that's almost unprecedented um, in in the world economy.
2: So you say that this is almost unprecedented. Has a large move like this ever sort of happened in recent history? And if if it has, what were the results of that?
4: Yeah. So the closest analogy is the sanctions on Iran, right? So um, both. Before the Iran deal, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal under the Obama administration, and subsequent after the Trump administration withdrew from that agreement, they reimposed some of these sanctions. Um, But the basic idea with that was to cut Iran off financially and economically from the rest of the world um, until they stopped trying to develop nuclear weapons. And it had a devastating effect, right? I mean, the big thing, if you cut off the Iranian banking system and the Iranian economy from the rest of the world, Iran can't send oil. And it basically, you know, bankrupted the Iranian economy. Russia is a much bigger player in the global economy. Um, They're a lot smaller than the U.S. or the EU, but they're still very large. And this is already starting to have that effect, Right. When you have a currency that has now crashed by 50 percent in the last three days Um, and over the next several weeks, basically, Russia is not going to be able to import and export goods um, at the same level. Um, It's banks. Right. There are reports of runs on ATMs in Moscow and St. Petersburg. So if you cut a country off financially and economically, um, it cripples it cripples the government, it cripples the economy. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pain coming down over the next few weeks and months in Russia economically. And again, the, you know, the reason that, that the U S and the EU and other countries are doing this is to try and raise the cost to Putin of the military invasion in Ukraine. Right. You know, Ukraine is not in NATO. We've made it clear that we're not going to put troops on the ground. Um, to fight a uh, war against Russia militarily in Ukraine. But this is basically, you know, the the thing that the world is doing and the world's major democracies are doing to try and massively raise the cost and cripple Russia's effort abilities to keep financing that war.
2: So obviously, this has a pretty big impact on the Russian government and economy. But I want to ask, how will this affect the average citizens of Russia? And then sort of on that note, on the flip side, will these sanctions affect the U.S. in any way?
4: So the, on, on the first one, there's going to be uh, you know, massive economic effects. I mean, you're going to see... You know, if you're running out of foreign exchange and you're not able to import and export things, you know, you can imagine good shortages in Russia. You could imagine much higher inflation in Russia. Uh, Russia's borrowing costs on its government bonds have now gone up from about, I think it was seven and a half percent to about 13 percent. So the cost of the government financing itself, um, which might lead you to print more money and again creates more inflation. So there's going to be a lot of economic pain. In Russia, um, you know, the question of how we might feel it here in the U.S. is um, probably not very much in the medium term. I think in the short term, you're probably going to have, you know, higher prices on some goods. Right. So Russia is one of the world's major petroleum producers and exporters Um major agricultural exporter. Um, so, you know, the, the way the American consumer is going to feel it is oil prices are probably going to, you know, go back up and be higher over the next few weeks or a couple months and, you know, prices at the gas pump. Uh, but Russia is very small in the global economy, right? Um, you know, Russia is uh, big and still a global superpower when we think about Um, military nuclear weapons when we think about economic stuff russia is very small compared to the u.s and the eu and china um and you know trade with russia for the united states they're a very small trading partner right um and so there there's not a lot of goods that we import from russia that are suddenly going to be in short supply or the prices of manufactured goods um are going to go up you know i uh um, one way I, I talk to my students about trying to understand like countries' position in globalization is to you know go to Walmart or Target and you know when you buy hundred dollars worth of goods, look at them and see where they're produced and how many of them are from China or from European countries or whatnot. Um, you know the number of consumer goods that come from Russia is very very small, right? So the the effect on the U.S. and on the European economies is going to be on the petroleum side, on the metal prices, and so indirect effects on the U.S. consumers. Much bigger effects on European consumers because they get more agricultural goods given geographic proximity from Russia. And Europe uh, gets, I think, about 40% of its natural gas from Russia. Right. So energy prices are going to spike in, in Europe. Uh, we're more insulated from that because we're not nearly as dependent on energy imports uh, on Russia as the EU countries like Germany are.
2: Well, Mark, do you have just any final thoughts on anything that we've touched on today that you'd like to express?
4: No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, again, the, the thing that I would emphasize is uh, the speed of this and the scope of it are really something that are novel and unprecedented. Um, and, you know, I think it's a it, it's a big signal, a lot of a lot of the political rhetoric around U.S., Europe, transatlantic relations, NATO over the last five or six years has been about tensions and divisions, right? And, you know, is the U.S. moving away from Europe, pivoting to Asia? Um, are we pulling back from NATO and things like that? And what's really striking about the last week is just the degree of unity and coordination and cohesion. Right. and i think it's kind of highlighted again how the transatlantic alliance and ties between us and europe are really um, one of the centerpieces of the global economy and also one of the centerpieces of the U.S.'s strategy for exercising power and kind of getting what we want in international relations.
2: I've been speaking with Mark Koplovich, professor of political science and public affairs and director of European studies over at UW-Madison. We've been talking about these sanctions imposed on Russia from governments across the world. Mark, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout has all the meetings around Madison and Dane County this week, Bridging the Gap looks at viral boomers on TikTok, and two new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Each week, Brenda Conkle and WORT's Dylan Brogan go over this week's happenings in city government in a segment called Forward Lookout.
5: All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County, and we'll we'll jump first to, uh, the, let's see, uh, well, the okay. Zoo Commission at 7.30 on Tuesday uh, doesn't have any agenda items, so who knows what's happening there. It's also very early in the morning at 7.30. But um, the Equal Opportunity Commission's Executive Committee, what can you tell us about that? That's on That's at 5.30 on Tuesday.
6: Um, They're mostly getting an update from the staff, a a whole bunch of things on their staff report. And then they'll also be, um, the executive committee usually meets to set the agenda for the uh, next uh, EOC meeting that they're going to be having.
5: Thursday, the Dane County Broadband Task Force is meeting for the the second time this week. Uh, They also met on Monday, it looks like.
6: Um, They are going to be looking at the Door County Broadband. Grant Broadband Engineering Study. And then they're also going to be looking at um, some matching funds for a Public Service Commission Broadband Expansion Grant. Um, they are also going to be meeting again on Friday.
5: Thursday is the big day in terms of county government. Uh, we have uh, the Executive Committee at 530 and then the full county board at 7. And for the second time, uh, two weeks ago, they delayed a vote on uh, authorizing um, $24 million additional millions of dollars um, for the Jane, Dane County Jail Consolidation Project. They didn't have the votes then. They need three-fourths because it's, uh, you need three-fourths if you're going to be borrowing more money for a project. So, yeah, uh, that's going to be a, a, a very important meeting. And um, what happens if it, if it doesn't pass? It'll, they'll, they'll be back to square one, essentially. Well, they'll have $150 million, but square one still.
6: <laughs> this is the county's version of the uh, Monona Terrace. <laughs> Seems like it just keeps getting uh, delayed and changed and
5: more expensive. Yep. Yeah, so the, the, the county board will, that's what we'll all be looking at. But is there anything else that the county board is um, examining this week?
6: Um, at 530, the executive committee is going to be looking at an election security review committee, okay. um, and then they're also going to be looking at their rules for um, the county board. Um, every two years, uh, the first meeting after everybody gets elected, they they make their rules, and the rules are there for the entire two years unless they get a supermajority vote. So if there are things about the way the county board operates you like or don't like, uh, now is the time to speak up. Um, at the executive committee. Personnel and finance will also be meeting right before the, the board meeting, and they are looking at um, some violence prevention, um, having a um, violence prevention unit within the public health um, for Dane County in Madison, and then they're also going to be looking at um, that broadband expansion grant. Um, and then when the county board meets, yeah, definitely the the highlight there is going to be the the jail vote. There's a few other things on there. Um, some committees are creating subcommittees and p- purchasing land and, and uh, actually transferring a park um, to the village of Marshall.
5: The city of Madison is what we'll talk about next. And uh, earlier today, 8 a.m., uh, the Common Council Executive Committee held final candidate interviews um, for their chief of staff position. So that's in closed session. So. Presumably we'll hear more about that later. But uh, happening uh, either wrapped up or it's still going is the finance committee, which uh, convened at 430. What's what's happening with the finance committee?
6: Um, lots of things. Uh, lots of people moving around at Madison Metro. Um, always uh, repositioning various positions within that unit. Um, and then they're going to also be talking about if they um, if they the deal that they got for paying for fuel runs out if they're going to be paying additional fuel costs, um, directly to their, um, their vendor. Um, they'll also be looking at, um, the compensation group 21 pay plan, which is all of the major department heads. Oh, yeah. They're also going to be adopting that vision zero action plan. Oh, and the cat has something to say.
5: Doesn't like those pay increases.
6: <laughs> Apparently.
5: <laughs> let's see. Uh, we'll jump now to, why not? We'll let's just talk about the common council meeting, uh, It looks like they're doing something. They'll be talking about the chief of staff position again at five 30 and then the full common council will meet at six 30. This is Tuesday.
6: Yes. Um, and I believe that the common council executive committee is also meeting at four 30. There currently is no agenda. So Hmm. I'm, I'm a little unclear what's going on there, but they probably, there's a few items on the council agenda that, um, seem to indicate there will be a recommendation made earlier that night. Um, if you're interested in the rest of what the council will be talking about, uh, mostly some liquor licenses. Um, if they're going to continue having virtual meetings, they seem to uh, look at that every single meeting. Yeah. There's a lot of items that don't have any recommendations because they're waiting for uh common council executive committee, the transportation committee and the finance committee to meet. So um, hard to know if those are going to be controversial or not. Um, and then they're also going to be looking at the, um, the approval of the Imagination Center at Rheindell Park
5: operating plan. So check back at forwardlookout.com when those uh, agenda items will be be added to the Common Council agenda. Um, Wednesday, uh, we have, looks like the president's work group on racial justice, anti-racism, and equity. I've never heard of this uh, work group. Is this a new work group from the, the Common Council president?
6: Um, This work group has been in effect for a while. They've mostly been looking at like participatory budgeting and a few other things. Um, This time they're intending to have a meeting with uh, the mayor um, to talk about boards, committees and commissions and the recruiting process and appointment processes for that. Um, They also will be looking at um, the civil rights recommendations for um, recruiting people for the boards, committees and commissions.
5: Let's talk about the, the Board of Public Works, which is meeting at 4.30 on Wednesday. Some interesting agenda items, Brenda?
6: Yeah, usually we don't talk about the Board of Public Works. Uh, usually they're they're busy doing very, uh, like, details after things have been approved. Uh, but this time they will be talking about the um, street reprogram. Um, that's gone to several committees so far. Um, they're also going to be looking at some of the roads in the Oscar Meyer Special Area Plan and deciding if, what they're going to do there. Um, they're also going to be looking at um, the Vision Zero action plan and also um, approving a cost sharing agreement with Dane County for historical investigation of PFAS used at the airport. So um, not a committee. A lot of people usually attend, yeah. but maybe they'll get some more attendance for this meeting.
5: Yeah, uh, some important issues being discussed. Also happening. uh, Well, no, this is on Thursday at 5 p.m. It's the Public Market Development Committee. And we learned last week that uh, Governor Evers is giving some uh, state money to fund the the public market in Madison, which, man, this project needed it. It's been sort of up in the air for a while now, hasn't it?
6: Yeah, maybe this is probably going on as long as the jail debate has the most recent jail debate has been going on as well. Um, they do have one link that's got all the materials for all the meetings in case you miss them. Um, and usually on their agenda, they just have project updates and they go through um, a lot of the materials that are in that one link. So if you're interested, you might want to uh, tune in.
5: All right, and for more meetings and agendas, head on over to forwardlookout.com, and you can peruse there or look up uh, um, specific items or learn more about it and how you participate. So, Brenda, thank you for giving us a preview of This Week in Local Government.
0: You're welcome. This Saturday marks the 50th anniversary of the Lordstown GM strike. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson tells us the story of the industrial Woodstock with music by Joe L. Carter with his song, Please, Mr. Foreman. Please, Mr. Foreman
3: This Saturday, March fifth, is the fiftieth anniversary of the launch of the nineteen seventy two Lordstown General Motors plant strike by fourteen hundred United Auto Workers, UAW members. The strike's main issue was a brutal speed up of the assembly line. The plant had opened in nineteen sixty six, employing thirteen hundred mostly young workers, including ten percent African American and five percent Puerto Rican workers. Many were Vietnam vets. The three hundred women workers faced sexism from foremen who could get real nasty, in the words of one woman. Lordstown was one of the most technologically advanced assembly plants of its time, featuring extensive robotic welding processes and the breakdown of countless assembly jobs into extremely short, repetitive tasks to produce subcompact cars. GM created a special division to combat competition from Japanese imports by squeezing as much as possible out of each worker. On the line, this meant micromanagement of time and motion of individual workers. In the fall of 1971, GM imposed a massive speed-up on the Vega line from 60 cars per hour to 101 per hour, the fastest line speed in the world. This beat Ford Dagenham and the European record of 70 cars per hour from GM in Cologne, Germany. At the same time, GM Lordstown laid off 300 workers. Lordstown workers responded with a brief wildcat strike, unsupported by the union. Workers were unable to keep up and face continuous health and safety hazards, sending unfinished cars down the line. Absenteeism was as high as 20%, with workers often not showing up on Mondays. By the end of the year, over 5,000 grievances were filed. By January 1972, a shop floor explosion was imminent. Overt sabotage became commonplace, Workers were suspended or fired. The local union denounced the company, but urged the workers to file the contract, avoid any illegality, and continue production. This tactic was not successful, and by February the local was forced to call a strike vote. An unprecedented eighty five percent of the workforce cast a vote, ninety seven percent in favor of a walkout. The UAW leadership saw the strike as a challenge to the nineteen fifty Treaty of Detroit. At that time after widespread strikes, The union had agreed to better wages and benefits in exchange for longer contracts, which prohibited strikes during the contract and limited their say over the shop floor conditions. This seemed like a good deal to workers in 1950, who had struck repeatedly, finally gotten recognition for their union, and grown up in the Depression. But by the early 70s, worker militancy was influenced by the burgeoning anti-war and civil rights movements. The years 1970 72 saw a strike wave in the U.S. that rivaled the mass strikes of 1945 through 1947. The international context included the 1968 general strike in France, strikes and planned occupations in Italy in 1969, and massive walkouts of British miners in 1972 and again in late. that toppled the conservative government. The Lordstown workers had reasonable demands to have the line slowed down back to 60 cars per hour, the rehiring of laid-off workers, and some kind of plan to, quote, change the boring, repetitive nature of assembly line work, end quote. The UAW and GM decided a short strike might let the workers blow off some steam, so they worked together to contain the rebellion, which threatened to spill over to other GM plants, GM and UAW leadership hoped a quick deal would show that Wildcat strikes were ineffective and collective bargaining was the best way to get gains from the company. UAW leadership took over the negotiations and narrowed demands to wages and benefits. After 18 days, GM agreed to restore almost all the 300 laid-off workers and the 1,400 strikers, but nothing was done about the speed-up, the main issue of the strike. Disgusted with the union, only 40% turned out to vote, still registering a 30% no vote. Tragically, the next UAW national contract in 1973 also did not address the speed-up of the plants, an issue that still plagues auto workers. And that is our story for today. For The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: It's now, 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. While TikTok is most well-known for dancing teens... As the app's popularity continues to grow, so does its audience. On this week's Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen walks us through the rising crowd of baby boomers on TikTok.
7: When you think of TikTok, you mostly associate it with young Gen Z users who post dance videos. Oh,
2: yeah. nah, I yeah. Yeah.
7: Like, but tiktok no. isn't just for the younger generation. There has been an increasing number of boomers hopping onto TikTok to create content that is going viral and getting millions of followers to watch their content. In this week's edition, we'll be looking at some of the most popular boomers on TikTok that you should know. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. As more boomers join TikTok and start making content, it's clear now that the app isn't just made for teenagers. Insider's Abby Lee Hood found that more people are enjoying content created by boomers because they offer a breath of fresh air. The adult TikTokers don't try too hard to overuse pop culture references or follow trends to gain views. Instead, the boomers are making videos because they enjoy it. Some enjoy giving life advice, some like to showcase their hobbies, and some just make whatever they think is interesting. Because of their authenticity, the older generation is able to connect with the users on a deeper level and show that social media can be more than just putting on a show. Here are some boomer content creators on TikTok that you should know about. First up is The Old Gays, comprised of Robert Reeves, Mick Peterson, Bill Lyons, and Jesse Martin. They are four to 60-70 year old gay men proudly sharing their sexuality and their life journey with people on the app. Not only have they gained 3.2 million followers on TikTok, but they have also appeared on Grindr's promotional videos and guested on Drew Barrymore's talk show. In a profile with NBCstoday.com, the four men talked about their recent rise to fame and what impact it has had on them. Jesse Martin says, quote, This has given me an opportunity to really use my voice and to just not worry about what people are thinking of me, end quote. Bill Lyon says that he feels lucky to be educating people now about what it meant to be homosexual back in the early days and showing them how much progress has been made. Next on the list is Granddad Joe. 88-year-old Joe Allington from Litchfield, UK gained a large following in less than three months at the start of the pandemic. He was unaware of the love he was receiving for a long time because most of his videos were made by his 15-year-old granddaughter, Brooke. In an interview with BBC, Allington says that he didn't really plan any of the videos but just did whatever his daughter and granddaughter asked him to do. He liked dressing up, goofing around, And the fun he has with his family when making these videos. Some of his most popular videos were him reminiscing about his late wife. Because he was only an actor in these videos, he had no idea he had a TikTok account that was going viral. When his daughter told him that he was gaining popularity on the app, he was so surprised that people liked him. He said that becoming popular on the app and making these videos has become like his second childhood. The last content creator you should know is the Retirement House. Content creators, especially in LA, are known to create content creator houses that gather all the influencers and TikTokers to live together and make content. Most of the content creator houses feature Gen Z social media users living in a big mansion and doing TikTok dances all day. The more famous ones are the Hype House and the Sway House. But not this house. The Retirement House is made up of adults over 70 years old who come together to make content. Their founding members are Peaches, Mabel, Hubert, and Eugene. And these boomers are here to show that they too have what it takes to be a viral TikToker. TikTok may be a Gen Z-dominated app, but these boomers have shown that you don't have to be young to become a popular sensation. The app welcomes anyone of any age to create content. Being authentic and engaging with sincerity will always draw people to connect with you. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yan.
0: On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson looks at two movies, one on streaming and one on the big screen. Cyrano, starring Peter Dinklage, puts a modern twist on a classic story, while mixtape showcases a young girl learning about her parents through music. I have a confession to make. I am madly in love.
6: Perhaps he feels the same.
0: But I've never actually spoken to him.
6: Of your love?
0: I
1: think. <laughs> he is Christian. Christian Nivelle. He's a new recruit in your regiment. Of course he is.
3: That was a clip from the trailer for Cyrano, a new film version of the 1897 play directed by Joe Wright. The movie originated as an off-Broadway musical written and directed by Erica Schmidt, Peter Dinklage's spouse. Dinklage plays the title role in both the play and film. Schmidt wrote the screenplay for the movie. Dinklage does a great job here, taking center stage literally to get rid of a bloviating actor near the start of the movie. We are treated to enjoyable swordplay and equally enjoyable wordplay, for Cyrano is equally adept at both. We also see the main conflict start to emerge with Cyrano playing to his would-be love, Roxanne, Haley Bennett, who has already become smitten with a handsome soldier, Christian, Kelvin Harrison Jr. Roxanne is in the expensive company Ben Mendelssohn Mendelsohn does a convincing job as the conniving, creepy bad guy of our story. The Duke loves for Roxanne, but she plays a dangerous game, keeping him at a distance, yet still going to the play with him. She doesn't have the price of the ticket and takes a stack of oranges offered at the play. Her servant, Marie, an exceptional Monica Dolan, explains Roxanne's position succinctly. A child needs love, an adult needs money, but Roxanne ignores her advice and imposes on Cyrano, to befriend her would-be love, and arrange an exchange of letters, leading to an eventual meeting. There's just one problem, Christian is tongue-tied. He is a capable brawler, and presumably an adequate soldier, but cannot string words together, so Cyrano makes the fatal pact. I will make you eloquent, you will make me handsome. Though there are some elements of humor, the story turns darker as it moves to its inevitable tragic conclusion. The anachronistic music mostly works here. The songs are by members of The National. Bryce and Aaron Desner wrote the music, with lyrics by Matt Berninger and Karen Besner. The most touching song comes near the end and has nothing to do with the love triangle. Soldiers, on the eve of a fateful battle, sing a sentimental farewell as they give their last letters to a young courier, all in all a well-done film with solid performances well worth seeing, especially for Dinklage's notable performance. See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. Now for a film on a lighter note.
0: How was your day? Same as usual. Same? Same as good.
1: Mom and Dad. A message from your parents. The tape broke. And now I want to get the songs. I
5: think I can help. It's this new thing called Napster. I need to listen to it the way my parents made it. It's like... Mixtape law. A mixtape is a message from the maker to the listener.
3: That was a clip from the trailer for Mixtape, directed by Valerie Weiss. This is a sweet, nostalgic film set in 1999 with a winning cast and some good music. Beverly Moody, Gemma Brooks Allen, lives with her grandma, Gail, and Julie Bowen, an overworked postal carrier. Beverly's parents died when she was very young, so she has no real memory of them. She can't get grandma to talk about them, it's too painful for her, so Beverly looks for clues about her parents. One day she finds a mixed tape they made. She sticks it into an old Walkman and the tape breaks halfway through the first song and becomes hopelessly unspooled, but she finds a list of songs and is soon on a quest. Beverly goes to the local record store where she meets the grumpy asocial record store owner to get his help to locate the songs on her parents list. She asks his name and he says, Anti, well played by Nick Toon. Anti, of course, eventually comes around and helps her find the songs. In fact, Beverly, in her search, finally gets the courage to talk to the girl across the street, Ellen, a fun Audrey Hushie. Beverly needs a translation for the second song, but it's in Korean, and Ellen is Taiwanese. But Ellen gets a tour of the neighborhood anyway from Beverly, and they become fast friends. Ellen has one of the first computers in the neighborhood and is soon helping to find the songs they defriend a faux-tough classmate, Nikki, Olga Petsu, who joins the search, inspiring Beverly to try to live like her parents, to understand them better. There's a sweet scene where the girls go to a haunted cemetery, following clues from one of the songs. Some of the best scenes are between Anti and Gail, who come to understand each other. All in all, a fun, light-hearted, warm movie that earns its gentle, upbeat ending. Well, worth watching. It just started playing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leap for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weghiehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.